My guest this morning is the head coach in field hockey at Trinity University in Hartford. Been there for the last 15 years. In her spare time, oh, she climbs mountains like Everest. Yes, indeedy. Ten years ago, she did get to the summit of Mount Everest. And Ann Parmenter is here today, the avid mountaineer who has summited some of the biggest mountains on the planet. To tell the story about what that experience is like. Ann, good morning. Thanks for coming in today. And when's the last big mountain you climbed? Maybe since Everest. Um, I've been a number of places last summer in Wyoming with uh, Exxon Mountain Guides, uh, which I was working with at the time. We climbed Gannett Peak, which is the biggest mountain in Wyoming. So Is that the Tetons? Um, it's not part of the Teton range. You can actually see the Tetons from Gannett, mm. but Gannett Peak is in the Wind River range. So uh, a lot of people think the Grand Teton is the biggest mountain in Wyoming, but it's actually Gannett Peak. So I was fortunate to do that with a good friend of mine, Jim Williams, very, very accomplished mountaineer. So, yeah, l last summer. How does climbing Gannett compare to climbing Everest? Um, well, the difference was we actually had to carry all of our own equipment this time into Gannett, which when you climb Everest, our Sherpa team carries all the heavy loads. So I actually carried a heavier pack past summer than I did on Everest. Um, so, yeah. Probably the work was, was ha harder in some respects, but obviously not the altitude and the length of time. We were only out for four days as opposed to 12 weeks. And just showed me a couple of pictures here today. And, of course, I mentioned she's the Trinity field hockey coach. And uh, one of the ones I think you're the most proud about is that you get to the summit of Everest and you're holding a Trinity pennant up there at the summit. Is that thing getting a lot of play on the Trinity campus? Um, well, a good friend of mine on, on campus gave me that flag and... Uh, in 2004, when I went the first time, I actually left the flag at home. So maybe that was a omen why that expedition wasn't going to go well. So I had to go you back didn't make again it and you take didn't make it. You didn't make it to the top of that it. one. Yeah. No. Um, so yes, we presented that flag to the president, Jimmy Jones, at the time, um, really as a thank you for giving me the time off again. And uh, they've now got it displayed in the admissions office. Um, now, I'm afraid to ask this question because I have read a lot about you, and I know you hear this question a lot, but, of course, the one you hear all the time, and I've got to ask, is why? Why do you want to climb Everest? Um, I just was talking this, this week at a, as a, at a convention, and the same question was asked. And Well, I might add, Beth, that that's <sighs> kind of how this came together today because you were speaking, I believe, the Connecticut Department of Labor, yes. and it had to do with teamwork and leadership. And we'll get into that as we go along today, but that's how you eventually got connected with me here this morning. Yeah, and I think, you know, the thing that's hard, everybody, that question first came when a, a reporter from the New York Times asked George Mallory when he was raising money in 1923 to go to Everest, why? And his, his reply was, because it's there. Um, and so you can use that same reply. I also tell people that, you know, I don't really know the answer to that question, and maybe that's why people like me keep doing stuff like this. Maybe we're seeking that answer. Um, but I also don't know that I can give an answer that will satisfy the person who's asking the question um, because it's, it just keeps going around in a circle. Um, but certainly when I'm in the mountains, I feel like I am. That is my church. Well, I think that we all would, in a perfect world, love to maybe, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us would like to do that. But we go, we'll never do that. At some point in your life, that appeared on your radar. When did you say to yourself, I'm going to summit Everest? I mean, I think I was like most people. I'd been very active in the outdoor community, rock climbing, mountaineering for a long time. But 
Everest from a financial standpoint just seemed like only the people that were, were rich are able to go put an expedition like that together. And then uh, my good friend Michael Codis, who worked at the Hartford Current at the time, was going to be doing a story, and he started talking to me, and um, would I like to be part of this expedition? And I was like, Mike, I can't afford to do a trip like this. And he goes, well, we'll start thinking about raising money, and come on, we can do this. And then before I knew it, Mike's very persuasive, we're talking to some other friends, and now there's sort of six of us all talking, and it becomes infectious, and next thing we're signing up, and what have I got myself into? So I think, you know, my message to everybody, there are things that all of us think we can't do, but you actually really can, and it's a question of just anything you put your mind to, you can do. Now, you've summited many of the biggest mountains on the planet, Denali and... Uh, uh, how do you pronounce it? Aconcagua? Aconcagua in Argentina. Okay, in, in the Andes, yeah. yeah, and Mont Blanc and so forth. Is Everest the toughest of all that you've climbed? Um, I cli Denali, the year we climbed Denali, that, that trip is a really physically demanding trip because you, again, you're carrying all of your own equipment, you land on a glacier, and then you're carrying a, an enormous pack, but then you're also dragging a sled that is 60 pound plus. And the person behind you is controlling the sled that you're towing so that when you're going downhill, the sled doesn't wipe your legs out while you're all roped together as a rope team. So I'm in charge of the sled for the person in front of me. And the person behind me is controlling my sled and I'm carrying a pack. Um, and Denali is situated just latitude-wise, that although it's not as high as the Himalayas, the, the elevation presents itself as a Himalayan peak. And so that was a physically very grueling um, mountain for me to climb. Um, so that one was, was difficult. And then a mountain that Mike and I climbed in the Himalayas called Arma de Blam was technically more difficult than Everest. So there wasn't the technical difficulty on Everest. Well, that cuts a little bit ahead of the story here, but... Tell me about that particular summit and how you were there and you could see Everest and that kind of whetted your appetite. And then when you got to the summit of Everest, you looked back and saw that mountain and yep. it all kind of came full circle. Yeah, I have a picture in my office from the summit of Arma de Blom. And again, I was lucky enough to summit that with my friend Mike. And uh, on our summit day, um, another a guy from another team actually fell into a crevasse and so we had to rescue this guy out of the crevasse before we could continue to our summit we didn't think we would make the summit because it was getting late so when we did get there um, it was later than you would really want to be on the summit and we looked towards Everest and you know the sun was beginning to go down and I just looked going wow that's amazing this is probably as close as I'm ever gonna get to that summit um, unbeknownst to me that almost sort of 14 years later I would have the opportunity mm -hmm. but then 16 years later I'd be standing on the summit looking down on the summit of Arma de Blom, um, which is still very prominent when you look out but yeah life has a very strange path for all of us and as you'll see as we go along this morning and I'm a little bit into weather mm -hmm. he says firmly tongue implanted in cheek what was the weather like at the summit of Everest? I was so fortunate the day that we climbed later in May. I'm coming up my 10th year anniversary. It will be next week, May 25th. Um, 
My good friend Bill Driggs, that was part of the two expeditions, didn't summit, but he is at Camp 4 right now as we speak. And I was getting updates last night from the expedition leader via Facebook Instant Messenger that they are headed up at Camp 4 waiting because they were sitting, they've been sitting out a storm. Um, we were really fortunate that we were behind a lot of the weather that had happened on, in 2006. And so when we got to the summit ridge, I had a regular pair of ski gloves. I didn't even have the big mitts on. Uh, I didn't have my hood up. I didn't have ski goggles. Um, they were just on the top of my head. And then we spent 50 minutes on the summit, and I have some pictures here with my gloves off, bare hands, zero winds, um, quite comfortable in the 8,000-meter suit, just literally hanging out in unbelievably beautiful weather. I was really moved by the IMAX movie called Everest. I've seen it three times, twice in the IMAX theater and once on the computer. You can see it. It's free. It comes in segments, but you can see it, and it's in high def. And one of the things that got my attention is when they get to the summit, the, the cameraman, by the way, is already there looking back. You have to appreciate all the work the cameraman did yeah. for that. But the lead hiker is coming up on the ridge, and as he moves his feet, the snow goes up, the snow goes down, the snow that he's displacing. Again, no wind. Is yeah. that common up there when you get to the I th summit? I think if you, again, there's always an element of luck, um, and a lot of the teams now are paying for really, really top weather reporting. So when we were there, we were using, um, a, there was a team in Switzerland that was sending just the most latest up-to-date weather forecast. So, you know, part of the people who are at base camp looking at how these weather patterns are working is timing your, your ascent of the mountains so that you can sit it out in your tents, the bad weather, and then when you look like you have a couple of days, I mean, we needed four days to go up, 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 and then the key is to be able to get down in good weather. And, you know, we all know from the 1996 tragedy, that's exactly what happened. They descended into terrible weather. Um, and at that point in your day, you're, you know, you're pretty exhausted. So most people at that point don't have the energy to then overcome what that bad, bad weather is going to throw you. Okay, so there's no wind when you're at the summit, yeah. so there's no wind chill factor. What right. was the absolute temperature at the summit of Mount Everest? And I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I actually don't, I didn't take note of what it actually was. I just know that we'd been living in this environment for so long, it just felt really like a day like today. It was really comfortable. Um, it's below zero, but you're, you're in a... 8,000 meter suit that's like wearing a sleeping bag um, and I honestly have to s tell people that I've actually been colder coaching lacrosse <laughs> at Trinity on our field because we start in February and there were days where standing out there I threatened to wear my Everest suit. Are there times you're on these high mountains and you see planes flying below you? Um, you definitely see the planes, and, and particularly in Wyoming, when you're getting pretty high, you're like, oh, I'm quite close to those. But, yeah, in the Himalaya, you don't have the same amount of traffic, for sure. But, you, yeah, you're 29,000 feet. If I want to climb Mount Everest, <laughs> right, what do I do? I mean, there's a combination of things here, including conditioning, of course. I want to find out about that. But what do you have to do? to be able to climb Everest. Who do you contact? You don't do it alone. Who are the people that go with you? And just kind of set me up on that. Well, if you're, if you're going with a reputable company, which that's another discussion, 
Um, we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> they they are going to make sure that you've got prior experience. So a lot of companies will want to see that you have a resume of going to other mountains, either climbing with them as a company. So there's a lot of commercial companies out there. Um, a lot of companies from the United States, a um, couple of big outfitters from New Zealand. But there are some people who year after year have very successful summits on Everest. Um, so you contact, you get yourself set up with them. There are hundreds of companies. The thing that's difficult is finding out the ones that are reputable or not. Um, and that was part of Mike Codis's High Crimes book, was actually following anybody can put up a website now and pretend or claim to be an Everest company. But yeah, Mike, Mike Codis from the Hartford Current, and you actually did that in 2004. What exactly. went wrong in 2004? Um, uh, we had a team that was pretty dysfunctional, and and you don't know that before you leave, right? Because no. you're getting together with strangers. Yes, and I would say that that would be something I would really caution people to today. If you were planning on going on a trip, a lot of times if you're going to sign up and it's just you and you're going to join multiple people is one find out if the company's really reputable they will have vetted the people to make sure that they have the experience ahead of time you don't necessarily know the character of those people however um, but to really know who your bedfellows are is something that i learnt that lesson pretty hard in two thousand four that i think i got caught up in the excitement and opportunity that oh my god i can go climb everest and it's really about the people that you're going to spend you know, two months with in ex sort of very tough environment, extreme environment, that when people are either hungry or cold or bored, things can happen. And so, one, you're going to have to have the money to go climb nowadays. Um, you, you talk money a few times. What, what is a, give me a ballpark figure. Today, minimum would be about $50,000 okay. to go climb with a company. Now, if you were to try to do it yourself, a little bit less, but just the infrastructure of paying your Sherpa, hiring the yak, getting yourself there. I mean, we had a team of 12 people, and it took 86 yak to get all of our equipment up to advanced base camp. And at the time we were on the mountain, there were 500 other people. So there was a procession like a traffic jam in Hartford of yak going up to advanced base camp. <laughs> How high do the yaks get? They're not they're not summiting. No, no, they're not summiting, but on, on the north side of the mountain they, they go all the way to advanced base camp, which is higher than on the south side. The south side they go as far as the Kumbu icefall. Um, and then they drop off there at base camp. But on the north side they not only go to base camp, but they go above base camp. So as long as they can walk that's as far as the yak are going. And you had mentioned a little while ago about the, the four days of the climb, but you just said two months. So it, it's a lot more than just the up and down. Yeah. So you're spending, you're, you're trying to get your body to acclimatize, acclimate to the elevation, because if you were to just arrive at base camp and climb it, you would die. Um, you're trying to force your body to make more red blood cells, and in order to make up for the fact that there's less oxygen in the atmospheric air because of the elevation. So it's like interval training when you're running. You're, you're going to an elevation, your body's physiology begins to produce red blood cells. The mantra of climb high, sleep low, 
So you climb up, you might spend a night, and then you come back down again, and your body has already been triggered to start producing red blood cells. So now your your body says, oh, I can I can function at that elevation, so now you might have a rest. Then the next day you go back to that elevation and go a little bit higher than that, and you keep doing this piggybacking up, down, up, down. So by the end of the trip, you've climbed the mountain multiple times if you just count the feet gained. But when you were on the summit, you were up there for a while. Did I read 12 hours? No, we were there for five oh fifty 50 minutes. So I was up there no, for almost that, an hour. Yeah, yeah I that, mean. That's still a long time. A lot of I know people, we had a, we had Eric Capitulic here about five or seven years ago. He got up there and basically was up there for a few minutes and turned on and came down. Because yes, yeah. you've got that situation you want to climb down while it's still light. Yes, yeah. So we, you know, for us, combination of nice weather. Um, we enjoyed the summit. I was able to sit look around, take in the fact that this is where I was, but my anxiety level for knowing that the summit of Everest is like hitting halfway of a marathon. You really need your wits about you because most of these accidents occur on the way down. And so as much as I was trying to enjoy being there, I was actually just preparing for the second part of the day, which was the descent, um, because you can't let up at all. So what is harder? Going up or going down? Uh, for me, personally, going down is really difficult because, one, you're trying to... A lot of people, I think, use all their energy, just like the base of Heartbreak Hill in Boston. People go so hard and then they hit heartbreak and that's it. It's heartbreak. Um, going down, you have to be so careful to not catch your crampons because if you fall going down, you're going down. Whereas if you trip going up, you're just tripping into the slope. Um, plus, most people can't eat on summit day. I ate some of the sport jelly beans on the summit. That was about what I could stomach. Um, and we'd left the tent at about 11 the night before. We got back to that same tent at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That was the first time I actually peed was 4 o'clock in the afternoon from 10 the night before. So I've had a bag of jelly beans. Is that beans. because you're sweating some of this out? Well, or? you're just incredibly dehydrated. Yeah. You, you just you're breathing very dry air through the oxygen cylinder um, so your body is just naturally at height dehydrated so high altitude climbing we talk about hydrate or die you you have a really hard time trying to maintain that hydration um, so yeah you haven't eaten very much and you haven't drunk very much and the most difficult part of your day is at the end when you've been going you know 12 plus hours and you've got to keep your wits about you could you have done it without an oxygen cylinder? Uh, that's a really interesting question um, because when you take oxygen, as much as you're breathing oxygen, not so much so that you like are able to go faster, but you're trying to get the blood to have as much oxygen in it so that the oxygen supply to the extremities, fingers, toes, and also to your brain, um, so you're not losing circulation and then obviously get frostbite. So you're using it to improve your mental capacity. Um, so I don't know if I, I'll never know if I could have done it, but I certainly, I mean, I spent the time on the summit without my, my mask on. You don't, you don't die. You just know that your actual functioning heart rate is around 200 beats a minute for the entire time and so that's why your body is just revving so that's why you're you you're burning about 10,000 calories a day 
Um, that's why you're dehydrated. It's like putting your foot on the gas and just not going anywhere. What do you think your heart rate is right now? Sedentary? 60. That's, and it's 200 when you're mm -hmm. up there at the it's, summit. It's above me. what my maximum sort of exercising heart rate should be. And can you compare and contrast sport jelly beans to regular jelly beans? Um, they have a little bit more. They, yeah, they're yeah. They cost you more. You could probably just <laughs> eat regular jelly beans and they'd be fine. Um, but these ones supposedly, you know, have, have got a little bit more glucose type uh, replenishing vitamins, and you know, it's got. It's like taking a Gatorade drink. It's got some electrolyte replacement in the jelly beans. Did Sir Edmund Hillary use an oxygen cylinder? Yes, he did. So that starts yes. right from the first person to scale the summit. Yes, and, and even George Mallory and Andy Irving in 1924, they, they had oxygen. They used oxygen on that ascent of the North Coal and as far as they, they made it. Um, really rudimentary sort of metal backpack frame with very heavy steel oxygen. Um, how those guys even got as high as they did, it's incredible to me. So what's next, K2? Oh, the, the statistics on K2 for women, one in four women that have summited K2 die. And so that mountain... How many men die? Uh, a lot. A lot too. Is it steeper? Why is K2 it's, harder? It's much more technical. It's much steeper. It's much more technical. Very prone to avalanches. Um, the weather is really extreme. And you're way out in the catacorum. Um, yeah, that's that's a whole nother kettle of fish, to be honest with you. It's uh, that's a big mountain. Big, and big when mountain. you get back to base camp, what hurts? Everything? One or two things? Um, f physically, you're pretty spent all over anyway. Um, for us, or for me personally, you know, on our summit day, I I saw the corpses of climbers who had perished. We had a climber. Who died. Yeah, they just stay there, by they the way, because the weather's so cold. Yeah, they and they no one's going to bring them and, down. No, and you can't. It's physically impossible to pick somebody up and bring them down. Um, there was a climber that died in front of us after we tried to help him, um, and right at the base of the second step, the Chinese ladder, he he collapsed and passed out. For me, what hurt was the emotion of the experience. Um, I was supposed to be really happy that I'd just been on top of the world. You're, you're physically exhausted, and yet I've just witnessed more people dead than I've ever seen in my entire life, and then somebody died that I couldn't help. And so you're so conflicted with the emotion of the experience while being so tired you're in this state of not knowing how to feel. You told the story just this week at a middle school. Tell me about that experience and what the kids want to know about. Um, I've had the honor of uh, going to Westbrook Middle School. A teacher reached out to me after following the story in the paper and uh, I've gone back, I think it's been nine years in a row, right about this time of the year. The students do a unit on Nepal, China and Mount Everest and um, they draw amazing pictures and they have to watch documentaries and do presentations. They're really, really well schooled and they've done their homework. So I share, I share my slideshow with them. I tell them my story and my journey. And um, then I spend some time, take my 8,000 meter suit and my boots 
all the kids get to try it on if they want to. Um, one year, we actually set up a tent in a classroom, and then we even I even put ropes around and had harnesses, and they had to go along the fixed ropes, clipping carabiners, and um, just giving them an experience that, that hopefully they will remember. But every single year they invite me back, and um, every year that it's, an ama- it's great. I, I love it. I love it. Anne does seem to be a fan of this extreme sports stuff. She's a marathoner or half-marathoner. And who's your running partner, Anne? So my running partner is former UConn basketball star Wendy Davis. Um, and we've been running together now for whew, more, more than 10 years, um, our connection being Trinity College. And, uh, yeah, we just started running together, and it's become a thing. Um, and Wendy was running the Mystic Half Marathon this past Sunday, and I wasn't officially entered, but Friday morning I called and said, oh, I'll come run it with you. So we went down to Mystic and ran that, and that was what a beautiful day to run a half. And on any given day, you might see the two of you running the greenways around here, right? Yeah, we, we've done, uh, when we were training for, it was Wendy's first marathon, Hartford, um, what we did was we kept extending our run until we were driving a car and leaving one car parked uh, at one end of the trail and it was so great to be able to run 20 miles all the way back towards Manchester Um, then we would get friends to drop us off and we would run and they would ride their bikes and uh, I discovered that trail for the first time through Wendy just just running and going further and further and further and the nice thing is that you just keep going in one direction you don't have to go out and back well i was going to say you could park your car and go 10 miles out and 10 miles back yep. and the cars they may get back but that's, that's not right. how you do it that's right we we were doing that we do that quite a bit we oftentimes will park at bolton notch and we will run from bolton notch just because it's not quite as busy as right there uh in east hartford or Vern- the vernon exit um but yeah, the tra- I love the trail because the canopy of trees keeps the sun off of it and the gravel, mm-hmm. but there are a couple of places where that incline, it's slow and gradual and it gets you, but yeah, it's one of our favorite places to run. And you also run this new Willimantic River Trail back behind uh, Bridge Street to yep. the Mackeys, too. Yep. yep. Amazing. I just love getting off the road. I mean, especially we, you know, running a lot in downtown Hartford. Uh, it, it goes from in Hartford to being able to run on trail. There's you can't hold a card to it. And the airline trail, you do that airline one? trail also, yes. And then out where I live, uh, the Farmington River Trail. I run in Collinsville. So you scale Mount Everest. You come down. How much weight do you lose? And you're you're pretty thin in the first place but do you yeah, take pounds off on an exertion like this yeah in 2004 when our trip was was not the greatest the food was really not good quality food you lose your appetite anyway um, and food became a bit of an issue because we just didn't even have enough of it um, I came back and I'd lost about 20 pounds and at that point where do you lose 20 pounds from yeah, Ann? yeah well, <laughs> well I'll be polite and I won't reply to that, but uh, <laughs> I'm sitting on it right now. And uh, we, I mean, I got back to the office and one of the secretaries, you know, and this is how crazy our society is. Uh, one of the women looked at me and she goes, oh, my God, what a great way to lose weight. Next time you go, I'll come with you. And I was like, I am emaciated right now. This is not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, people ask me, how did I train for the next trip? And I honestly... I went to the dining room at Trinity and I tried to eat as much as I could before I went because I 
tried to put on some weight, um, knowing that I was going to lose. So second trip, I was more conscious about what I was eating, trying to eat more when you're on the trip, but you're still losing about, I lost about 15 pounds or so. And, you know, it takes a while coming back home to get back into a pattern of being able to eat normally or regularly again. You gave a really good summary of what your preparation is like when you go over. You don't just go over, climb, and come back. There's a two-month rigor. But you really can't condition yourself for climbing a mountain like Everest in Connecticut, can you? No. Um, you know, you can be physically in the best shape that you can be. And I've seen some of the fittest, strongest um, guys that I've been with you can't control whether you get altitude sick. And I've seen some incredibly uh, like ultra runner type people really suffer from altitude. And I don't know if there's actual physiology science behind why. Um, some of the fitter people have had a harder time acclimatizing. And now whether their body has just got used to enduring for the duration of a race and is not changing, whether that has anything to do with it, I have no idea, but it, it's really hard because I've seen people put a lot of effort into their physical conditioning, get over there, and just be absolutely slammed by the altitude. Or the other thing that gets to a lot of climbers is you spend a lot of time waiting. So you talk about hurry up and wait. You hurry up, you get to camp. Now you could sit for three, four, five, six days. And because of the weather? Because of the weather, it's not the right time, you're not, your body's not acclimated yet, and people get bored. And so m sort of being able to master your own boredom or your mind when you're already compromised mentally, um, it's very hard to explain when you're at sea level and you're comfortable and you're nice and warm. So we had people leave our trip because they, they just couldn't wait any longer. Do people scale Everest without Sherpas and yaks? Just go up and do the climb and come down. Um, it has been done. It's incredibly difficult. It has been done, but it is a mo just monumental task in itself. Most will seek some, you know, there will be people who won't necessarily have guide. They go and they are pr climbers, but they will still seek help by getting their equipment carried up the valley. Um, they might do the carrying of the loads themselves once on the mountain, but to get all their equipment to base camp or helicoptered up, um, to carry it all the way from, you know, down in Lukla where you land or base camp, really tough. So you're going up to the top of Everest, 29-some thousand feet. How heavy is your pack? It's basically got the oxygen tank in it, and that's it. It's not heavy at all. It's, it's, you're carrying a pack with your oxygen cylinder, and that's it. So, Did you have occasions of frostbite? Uh, nope. I was fortunate either just being able to keep everything circulation going. Um, frostbite is irreversible. Frost nip is just when your flesh freezes but you can rewarm. And that's the con most of us in, it, in New England have had that. Um, we talk about the screaming ab dabs when your hands get so cold and then circulation returns. A lot of people will have had a little bit of frost nip where you just rewarm the flesh. Um, How do you rewarm it? Well, particularly here, ice climbing in New England, taking, like, shaking your hands, getting the circulation, hands in your armpits, uh, 
feet inside someone else's jacket, that type of thing. I saw you spent Christmas week at Mount Washington. Did you actually climb Mount Washington? That's sort of what you do. Yep. Um, I work for Easter Mountain Sports as a, a rock climbing mountaineering guide um, out of the North Conway store. And that's actually probably our most popular time up there is the winter ice climbing season. A lot of people want to climb Mount Washington in the winter. Where? Um, Tuckerman? Uh, you usually climb up the Winter Lion's Head Trail, so out of Pinkham Notch. Um, so people are oftentimes getting their first experience with crampons on and using ice axes. So they'll spend a day learning how to use those tools. Um, and, yeah, Mount Washington, just, again, not high elevation, but the extreme weather. I've actually had... I have had frost nip and had more extreme conditions on Mount Washington than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Including Everest? Yes, because <laughs> Mount Washington is a, that is a savage mountain also. The so, world's worst weather, they call it. Yep, and it's to be respected, and I think that's the thing. People think it's so close to the road, but uh, a lot of stuff happens. People die on Mount Washington of exposure. How about uh, hiking Monadnock or Katahdin? Yep, all of those things. Katahdin is a, is is out there. Like it is not an easy thing to go into Katahdin because you are even further out. Uh, you know, up in Baxter State Park, there it's uh, that's quite a trip. Up near Millinocket, and uh, I'm going to show you a picture, which is the cover of, of something I showed you off air a moment ago. The WILI weather calendar. Does this look familiar at all to you? Yes, you it does. You know what that is. That looks like Mount Washington it's right Katahdin. there. Oh, that's Katahdin. In the that's winter. Katahdin, fall foliage in Beautiful. the lower elevations, yep. snow and clouds. That's Compass Pond yep. in front of it. So I'm going to give you a copy of the weather calendar because we're also showing off the uh, the picture I took in October on one of the Walktober events with Ray Axelrod where I took a picture of the autumnal splendor of the Hop River in Columbia near Hop River Road. And then, of course, that's right where the Greenway is we talked about yep. earlier on. When it comes to climbing Mount Everest, how many women do it? Um, certainly not as many women as men. Um, nowadays, there's, there are many, many more women in mountaineering. Um, you know, a lot of trips that I have done myself, I would typically be the only woman on the trip, um, and that's not uncommon. But now... Um, there are a lot, a lot more. I, as far as a ratio, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. But it's not uncommon that a lot of teams there are none. Um, but there are more women that are rock climbing, mountaineering, ice climbing to really high levels now. People, I think, know the names of Hillary and Mallory, but they may not have it roll off their tongue. Junko Tabe. Can you tell our listeners who Junko Tabe is? Yeah, she was the first woman to summit Everest, a Japanese Japanese woman. A um, lot of lot of Japanese, very f strong Japanese climbers. Um, but at the time, you know, that had been some years since Sir Edmund Hillary climbed. So, nineteen seventy. She did it in seventy five. Yeah, actually, so this week in seventy five. Is this the time of the year when it usually happens? Yours was. Ten years ago next week. Yep. So the typical Everest s sort of spring season is now. So you, I left March 31st in order to be there for April, and April is when you do a lot of your preparation up and down the mountain, up and down, and you're looking for the window of weather at the end of May where the jet stream is pulled off the summit of Mount Everest 
right before the monsoon sets up and the wind is pulled down into sort of the Bay of Bengal and that sort of couple of weeks at the end of May pre-monsoon is when you're looking for lower winds, good clear skies and then after that the icefall starts to melt and so it's even more dangerous and then the rain starts so you want to you definitely want to be off of Everest before the end of May. You know that I backpacked the Grand Canyon in 2002 but I'll have to admit that most of what we did in the Grand Canyon was trails. When you're climbing Everest where do the trails stop? Right on the top. So There's trail, a trail all the way to the top? You, by the time western climbers climb it, the Sherpa have fixed ropes all the way to the summit. And so for western climbers, you follow the rope. And that's what makes the Sherpa just absolutely incredible because they have fixed sort of five miles plus worth of ropes for clients to just clip, unclip, and follow. And Sometimes you can't see very clearly, but yes, it's almost like there is a trail to the top. You know, you did mention the sport jelly beans earlier. We should probably talk a little bit more about what else you ate while scaling Mount Everest. Well, knowing that the first time around the food wasn't great, I actually, the second time, actually made a traditional British Christmas cake, heavy in the fruits, and I baked a huge cake here. I took it, wrapped it, I took it with me, and I got so sick of eating granola bars and all of that type of food, trail, trail, trail mix, mix yeah. and um, you know people think we drink, eat a lot of dehydrated food. We did not. We would make and have our Sherpa cooks would make real food. But I would slice off a big hunk of English Christmas cake with fruit and be able to throw it in your pack. Um, you eat a lot of hard-boiled eggs, and I had eggs for breakfast every morning for about six weeks. So. Do you have to bring water or you just melt snow? Uh, well, at camp in the morning, uh, water is prepared and it's melted. And so we would be filling our bottles with, with water that was melted. And we had a Tibetan cook boy that was chipping ice from the glacier. And that's why to have a shower, you know, I felt so guilty. This poor guy had worked so hard to fill a sack of ice and then had to melt it and you know that all of that water is such a precious commodity that um, about every four or five days I'd ask for a bowl of warm water for to wash me, wash my clothes. Like a sponge bath? Have a sponge bath and then other than that it would be baby wipes. So yeah, you would fill your bottles in the morning, I would fill a camel back, uh, maybe put some you know, Gatorade powder in it to make it taste a little bit decent. Um, but that's that's what you're drinking. What I find to be amazing is with all the preparation, all the money, the emotional investment involved of going over there, you're halfway, maybe two-thirds of the way up the mountain, and you've got to pull the plug because you say this isn't working. It's amazing to me you can make that decision. I know you wanted a forge on, but you said this isn't right. Why? What was wrong? Uh, there was a couple of factors. Uh, Michael Codis, who I've mentioned, and I were sort of climbing together. Um, members of our rest of our team had gone ahead. Uh, my good friend Bill Driggs had returned home. Um, I did have a chest infection, which was certainly affecting how I was feeling on the mountain. Did you go there with that, or did no. you get that when you were there? Yeah, I got it when I was there. A lot mm -hmm. of people breathing the really cold, dry air tends to burn the back of your windpipe. And so you do a lot of mouth breathing because your heart rate is so high, you can't breathe regularly through your nose. So 
it introduces cold air into your lungs you get you know then you get infections and a lot of people have this what they call the kumbu cough everybody is coughing like they smoke cigarettes it's very common to just listen to people hacking the entire time you're there um, now I learned from that experience to the next time cover my mouth you know have a bandana something like that um, but anyway so I had a chest infection but sort of other members of our team that had gone ahead of us there was some some disputes going on within the team the dynamics were really poor and um, one of the leaders of the expedition had actually threatened Michael because he was the photographer and he'd been taking pictures throughout the trip and so there had been some veiled threats that the tent that Mike and I would share was going to be thrown off the mountain and so a combination of I wasn't feeling well Michael physically didn't feel well but we also knew we really did not have the support I use the word teammates very loosely because for the first time in my life I was really faced with what was so wrong and what was right and members of that team were willing to take oxygen from other teams if in fact we didn't have enough ourselves and to not contribute to paying for fixed ropes when I did not sign up to climb a mountain like that and it was just a, an absolute moral decision for me as along with the physical decision that Michael and I didn't feel safe I didn't feel a hundred percent and I couldn't count on my teammates to be there for me and then two years later you did it the right way and got to the summit this program this morning got connected with me because of a release that I got from the Department of Labor. You spoke to an event sponsored by the Department of Labor, the Connecticut Department of Labor, and one of the things you talked about was leadership. You said leadership was instrumental in our successful 2016 expedition. So maybe compare and contrast and what that leadership phrase has to do with climbing a mountain. I think climbing a mountain, coaching a sports team, if, if you have people that you believe in and that you trust, and I would say trust is the biggest thing in any organization, is people will do anything for people that they trust and respect and will work together to the common good and the common goal. The minute you lose the trust and a skilled leader manages to keep everybody on board, and I always people don't sabotage their own projects so being a part of a project working together in 2006 everybody contributed they shared their food they shared their resources they helped each other out they put a lending hand down and helped people when they needed it as opposed to 2004 people hoarded food they took the last pancake they didn't care if you were cold or wet or hungry and it was just so extreme in the experiences that 2006 for me epitomized what a team that works together can do. In 2002, I backpacked the Grand Canyon. I had some issues, <clears throat> thighs and calves in particular, going hard down off the rim. You're going hard up to, of course, the top of Mount Everest. But when I got to the rim on the last day and I got to the summit, it was a feeling of euphoria like I've experienced very few times in my life. You've been to the summit of many of the highest peaks in the world, but you get to the top of Everest, and you're dealing in life-threatening conditions, even though the weather wasn't bad up there at the summit. 
Did you have that same feeling of euphoria that I talked about after getting to the rim of the Grand Canyon? I um, I show a slide in my slide presentation where, you know, climbing from the north side, you're looking at the mountain almost every day in good weather. And so it's overwhelming to think you're trying to climb it. But on our summit day, you make sort of a final turn and you look up and you realize you're actually looking up and there is no more that you're almost there and I actually started to cry about 40 meters from the summit and I had to have a little conversation with myself to just say Anne you have to pull yourself together you're not there yet if you lose it here um, you still have to get down as we talked about earlier and so I kind of collected my thoughts um, got down and I think for me it struck me the day that I was leaving advanced base camp to go back down um, I had music playing, I had I had U2 playing in my head, and I looked up at the summit and having sort of, as I shared with you, the experience of seeing people who had died, not being able to help the climber Thomas Weber, I just lost it with the music, looking up at the summit, knowing I was walking back down. That's when it really struck me. It was sort of, it was a euphoria in one respect, but I think it was an emotional letdown that, this is all, it was overwhelming. This interview will be archived on our website, and I guess Mom will yeah. be one of those who will be able to hear it. Yeah. She's in Australia now. What did Mom think when you told her that you wanted to get to the top of Mount Everest? Um, well, my mom and my dad, um, when I was going in 2004, I actually, you know, they, they've never been super keen on all the crazy things I do. Um, <laughs> The, the one thing that my dad did forbid me to do, if you like, was I wanted to go caving and potholing with some of the guys I used to climb with. And he said, no, I draw the line there. That is way too dangerous. And so I never have gone. But I did ask them in 2004. I, I was like, I need your blessing. And would you just say it's okay? And they were like, well, obviously you're a grown adult. You're going to do whatever. But we're not happy, but okay. Um then, of course, everything that happened on that expedition and then the book High Crimes was written about that trip. When I asked, I said, my dad had said, look, over my dead body, I don't want you to go back. And so I, you know, talked with them and, and I said, Dad, obviously, I don't wish that to be the case. I would like you to say, all right, I permit you to go. I want you to give me your support. And so he did, um, obviously. And then their neighbors were following online because our summit was being posted by Jamie McInnes, who uh, ha was the, the expedition leader with Project Himalaya. Jamie was at advanced base camp, having already summited a couple of days before. He was watching us in a scope. So he was updating who was approaching the summit, and my mom and dad's neighbors read that I'd summited, went round to their house. It was 10.30 in the morning, knocked on the door with a bottle of champagne and said, Anne's on the summit of Mount Everest. <laughs> I mean, and that's how technology <laughs> spreads mm. the word, which is incredible. So they're okay in retrospect. In retrospect, but yeah. when my friend Bill Driggs, who's there now, and Bill owns the restaurant Two Hopewell in South Portland, here in, in uh, just Glastonbury, when he was telling me he was going back with one of our, uh, our guys from 2006, Hugo, um, I really wanted to go. I was so desperate to go with them because they were so instrumental in being a part of that team. Um, my mom is like, Anne, please. And my sister, no, you've done it, please. And so 
if I were to go again, it would be they would not give consent. Uh, lastly, we mentioned the Department of Labor speech you gave on Friday earlier this week at Westbrook Middle School. You would like to talk to more people about this. How I, do they get in touch with you? Um, well, I have, you know, it's just my email at Trinity, which is ann.parmenter at trincol.edu. Um, you can go onto the website, mm. field hockey page, it's there. Uh, my cell phone number I can leave with the radio station and for I sure. Can, I, they can contact yeah. me and I can pass the word along. I, I just yeah. really enjoy sharing my story and hoping to maybe give some people some encouragement, motivation to to sort of climb their own Everest, as I say, um, because not everybody is as crazy, but people have things in their lives that seem insurmountable, and I think if I can help, then that's great. She enjoys telling the story, but I think I enjoyed hearing it more. Man, this was fantastic this morning, Anne. I really appreciate you coming out from Bristol and telling the story about scaling Mount Everest and also two years earlier when you're halfway up and you've got to turn around and come back for various reasons, too. Anne Parmenter, she's the head field hockey coach at Trinity. as She's told the story about summoning Everest this morning on 14 WILI Willimantic.